0: Welcome to episode seven of the planning life insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things you need to know to navigate your way through the planning system of England and Wales. Today, we'll be looking at the new London plan. formally adopted on the 2nd of March 2021, four years after its first inception, we'll be examining what opportunities and challenges it creates for our clients trying to bring forward their major schemes in our nation's capital. The 2020s were supposed to herald the age of the megacities, not news to anyone who's been reading Judge Jed comics about Mega City 1, Britsit and East Meg 2 since the 80s. Though at least, we've managed to avoid nuclear war, paramilitary police and muscle-bound actors blurting out I'm the law every five minutes. Over the last few years, the economic and political power of major cities has been growing exponentially cities like London are networked into global webs of culture, commerce, and communication that mean they have a shared value system with other global cities. So their identities and priorities are starting to diverge from those of their wider nation states. Major cities have increasingly been trying to embed that mega city value system into any local laws and policies where they have jurisdiction. That global trend has certainly filtered down into the world of London real estate and is an underlying theme to the London plan, from approaches to viability and affordable housing to air quality. The London plan really matters. It's the statutory spatial development strategy for London. Borough local plans must be in general conformity with the London plan, ensuring that the planning system for London operates in a joined up way. Also, decision makers are required by law to determine planning applications in accordance with it as part of the development plan, unless material considerations indicate otherwise. So the mayor's new London plan will shape development across the city for the next 20 years. It will play a crucial role in the city's success and prosperity, driving housing delivery, economic recovery and sustainable development. And release of the new London plan comes at a really pivotal and challenging time for London as it seeks to establish a new post-Brexit identity and maintain its global position emerging from the COVID pandemic. My name is Sheridan Traeger, I'm the planning team of law firm Brian Cave Leighton Paisner and I'm joined by fellow Megacity judges, Claire Eccles, our team's dedicated know-how lawyer, the closest thing we have to Judge Cassandra Anderson of the Psy Division of the Justice Department of Megacity 1. I don't think Claire has any psychic powers, but she certainly keeps an eye on the future of legal and policy planning changes like the London Plan. I'm also joined by rookie judges, our trainees Laura Johnson and James Murphy, Though rookie by name, they are certainly not rookie by nature. We also caught up earlier for some expert insights from Sarah Bevan at London First, Chris Wall at Air Quality Consultants Limited, and of course, BCLP partner Giles Pink. They'll be helping us in policy areas that were the focus of the Secretary of State's directed revisions during the plan-making process and will be of particular interest to developers bringing forward major schemes in the capital. Good afternoon, everyone.
1: Good,
0: Good afternoon, afternoon. James the new London plan is certainly ambitious isn't it?
2: It certainly is but then it has to be. It's got the challenge of delivering growth in a constrained city for a population projected to increase by seventy thousand each year reaching 10.4 million by the end of the plan's term in 2041. It aims to do this with an overarching objective of what it calls good growth that is socially and economically inclusive and environmentally sustainable claiming to be more ambitious
0: and focused than any previous London plan. Now, now we're not a political podcast, so we're not really going to get into it. But I'm reminded of something said by Otto von Bismarck, unifier of modern Germany: "Gesetze sind wie Würste; man sollte besser nicht dabei sein, wenn sie gemacht werden." Now I could have just said anything there, couldn't I? But basically, laws are like sausages: best not to see them made. That's often true of planning policy and the London plan, which has been almost four years in the making and at times has not been a pretty sight. So much goodwill for doing the best for London, but people do come from different angles. Claire, any psychic insights?
3: Well, Sheridan. If we just take a look at the last year or so of the emerging London plan's drawn-out journey, we're not delving into any ethereal universe. After its initial consultation, the draft plan went through a lengthy five-month examination in public in 2019, where, as you would expect for a plan of this status, the policies were closely scrutinised and examined. The first intent-to-publish version of the new plan that was submitted to the Secretary of State at the end of 2019 didn't get the green light of approval. Instead, the Secretary of State criticised the Mayor and his plan on a number of fronts, including his track record on housing delivery and that the new plan would actually make development more difficult and fail to bring more land into the planning system. He then issued 13 directions to the Mayor directing changes to certain policies. The Mayor ultimately conceded to the directions and the second intent to public version which had been modified, received approval at the end of January 2021. So it is this version that is now the adopted new London plan 2021.
0: Great stuff. Now, one of the policies of greatest interest to our developer clients has always been the strategic target for 50% of all new homes delivered across London to be genuinely affordable. This is now policy H4, And the threshold approach to viability and affordable housing is firmly embedded as policy in policy H5 of the new plan. The mayor has long thought that affordable housing in the capital is broken and aspired to a minimum 35% affordable housing requirement to be embedded as policy. And for this to be reflected in the London housing market, you know, and, and ideally 50%. This was to cut what some saw as a downward spiral. In the 2000s and 2010s, which led to an average of only 13% affordable housing as the norm, even during property booms. This was described as the circularity, which sounds kind of science fiction-y, but is perhaps more Tales from the Loop, that newish sci-fi series than Judge Dredd. I wish Joe, one of our previous trainees, were here to see that we can do references to TV more recent than the 80s.
2: Yes, but Sheridan, you clearly never got that far into seeing the loop, because it's nothing to do with circular patterns. It's actually a machine built to unlock and explore the mysteries of the universe.
0: Ah, well, James, we don't need a machine to unlock and explore the mysteries of the universe. We have Claire. Anyway. To the mayor, there was no mystery in the circularity. That is that land values provided in viability assessments where developers set out how much affordable housing could reasonably be required were based on recent comparable acquisitions or actual acquisitions which might themselves in turn have overpaid on land values because at the time of acquisition those comparable acquisitions had assumed that when it came to the planning stage less affordable housing would need to be given than a future policy compliance scheme might actually need because they could say, they'd paid so much for the site, there was nothing left in the kitty for the target affordable housing which policy required. So councils never ever got an optimum policy-compliant affordable housing offering. And the cycle, or what we will now call the loop instead of the circularity, went on and on. The mayor wanted to be clear that in London there would be no escaping what he regarded as policy-compliant affordable housing commitments. Going forward, uh, City Hall said, developers could use that as a bargaining chip to bring down property prices to enable scope for policy compliant affordable housing when they came to the planning stage to build affordable housing into the price that was paid for sites. And City Hall officials also made pretty clear informally that if this meant certain sites in London would sit fallow because developers had overpaid, well, that was a price worth paying to break the loop. And if landowners in no rush to sell were going to sit on their sites hoping for the storm to blow over and policy to change instead of releasing their sites into the market, well, City Hall said they would be waiting a long time. So James and Laura, take us through what policy H5 finally says about affordable housing requirements and where we are now.
2: Okay. so first you need to understand where the thresholds for affordable housing on residential development have ended up. This is initially set at a minimum of 35% which must be affordable. However, for public sector land this is 50% and it's also 50% for most kinds of industrial land and that's to reflect the potential significant difference in value between the two uses. In the same way as the supplementary planning guidance issued by the Mayor on affordable housing and viability back in 2017, you've still got the fast track route for proposals that meet the 35% affordable housing threshold or 50% if it's public or industrial land. Planning applications allocated to the fast track don't need to provide a viability statement, which can be a really, really big incentive. Otherwise, applications follow the viability tested route, which means developers need to submit detailed supporting viability evidence
0: explaining why more affordable housing than is offered can be provided. And the borough and mayor will then scrutinise the viability information to make sure the maximum level of affordable housing is being offered. They could decide that a greater affordable housing contribution than is being offered is viable, maybe even one that exceeds the 35% or uh, 50% threshold levels. Ongoing viability reviews are also required under this route throughout the development process until most of the dwellings are sold. To capture any changes that mean the development could support a higher level of affordable housing.
4: That's right, Sheridan. I just add that to get onto the fast track route, it's not just hitting 35 or 50% affordable housing full stop. You also have to meet a number of other criteria. For example, you have to comply with the relevant affordable housing tenure split which requires a minimum of 30% low-cost rented homes, as either London affordable rent or social rent, and a further minimum of 30% intermediate products, which count as genuinely affordable housing, including London living rent and London shared ownership. The remaining 40% is up to what the borough considers to be low-cost rented homes or intermediate products based on the identifiable need.
0: That's very interesting. The sense I get from clients is that some have either looked for opportunities outside London because they don't like the threshold approach, or where developers are pursuing London schemes and been told 35% is politically sacrosanct, they've said, we're on board with that, but something needs to give on the borough's other contributions, or it's perhaps slightly more aspirational infrastructure hopes. So it's accepted the threshold approach is here to stay, and debate over the threshold approach has moved on to what affordable housing tenure split counts towards that 35%. Again, very interesting. But Laura, there are still other criteria to get onto the fast track route, aren't there?
4: Yes, that's right. A couple more. Um, your scheme must meet other relevant policy requirements and obligations to, satisfac- to the satisfaction of the borough and the mayor when relevant.
0: A nice sweeper provision there, presumably to try and halt other policy requirements having to be abandoned by councils during negotiations to enable that minimum 35% of affordable housing to be given, whilst also allowing a bit of an element of, of discretion.
4: True. Also, you've got to demonstrate you've taken account of the strategic 50% target in policy H4 and have tried to get grant funding to increase the level of affordable housing.
0: Let's get a view from Sarah Bevan, of London First, then, on the consensus of her members on that threshold approach, now that the dust has settled uh, on it, and particularly on the tenure mix in policy h five, because I know a lot of our clients have seen opportunity in that mix. Here's Sarah.
5: Well, I think members really value the clarity and the certainty that the threshold approach can bring to a project, especially now that it's been around for over three years, it means that it's really embedded itself into the land valuation process and so it's reflected in the price that a developer pays for a site up front. And of course, an applicant does still have the flexibility to go down the viability-tested route. Um, You know, if there are any unforeseen costs or circumstances, which means that the tests of the threshold approach can't be met on that particular project, so that flexibility is welcomed. But although there have been these benefits, I don't think it's sped up planning decision-making to the extent that was originally hoped for and you know the main problem is that an applicant has to adhere to quite strict requirements on dwelling mix within their 35% uh, for example one of our members recently told me they had a scheme with a headline affordable offer of 50% but because they didn't quite meet the GLA's mix requirements and had to go down the viability tested route even though they were far exceeding the 35% threshold you know that's where the system is just a bit too rigid and you know, it risks undermining delivery because that developer would actually have been better off reducing their overall affordable, affordable offer and then changing the mix. But that wouldn't have been the best outcome for affordable housing supply in London, would it?
0: Okay, let's move on to intensification. Because of course, in a highly developed city constrained by Greenbelt, policies around intensification and density of development will always be important in London, Claire.
3: Okay, so this was a policy area that the Secretary of State wasn't happy with initially. He thought the plan could result in high density proposals being considered in isolation, which could have resulted in development of inappropriate sites. He directed specific changes that required developments are consented only in areas that are able to accommodate them. The policies also support intensification that is proportionate to a site's connectivity that higher densities will, in general, be permitted on sites with higher public transport access and accessibility to town centres. Existing high density areas can also be expanded, and this could include expansion of opportunity area boundaries. But also incremental densification is actively encouraged, and recognition is given in the policies to the capacity of low density commercial sites, car parks and retail parks, for housing intensification and mixed use redevelopment. So where things stand, the adopted plan requires that development optimises capacity and it supports intensification and higher density development, but that this must be directed to the most appropriate sites and at a level that is proportionate to its connectivity.
0: So basically uh, what you're saying there, Claire, is if your site has decent public transport access and is accessible to town centres, you're more likely to get consent for higher densities.
3: Exactly, that's it.
0: So um, where do things stand on Greenbelt and Metropolitan Land, also called, called MOL or M-O-L, and is treated as Greenbelt, uh, which are basically one of the key constraining policies which are fueling this need for densification, Claire?
3: So the original policy on the Greenbelt and Metropolitan Open Land was criticised for its inconsistency with national policy. For example, there weren't any references to exceptional circumstances which the Secretary of State thought could be confusing for applicants and decision makers. So these policies were ultimately modified and they now mirror national policy in the NPPF, which requires exceptional circumstances to justify the extension or de-designation of Greenbelt or Metropolitan Open Land.
0: Okay, so James, could you just summarise then for us the London Plan tests as they now stand on Greenbelt?
2: So the plan strongly supports the continued protection of London's Greenbelt and requires it to be protected from inappropriate development. Therefore, development proposals that would harm the Greenbelt should be refused except where very special circumstances exist. The enhancement of the Greenbelt to provide appropriate multifunctional beneficial uses for Londoners is supported subject to national policy tests and exceptional circumstances are required to justify that the extension or de-designation of the Greenbelt through the preparation or review of a local plan.
0: I guess if London is to grow, it's got to go up. And uh, we've spoken about densification uh, or grow out. But there's a view that it's unrealistic to think that brownfield sites and densification alone will meet the scale of London's housing need. Kind of like when you hit middle age, you know, you're still growing, but realistically it's not up anymore. So a lot of groups are asking, when is there going to be a Greenbelt review? I asked Sarah Bevan what London First members think about where the London Plan's Greenbelt policy has ended up, whether they think there's any real prospect of a serious re-examination of the Greenbelt, and what will happen without that re-examination. Here's Sarah.
5: Well, unfortunately, all that's really happened as a result of the towing and throwing between MHCLG and the Mayor is that the Greenbelt and MOL policies in the London Plan are now consistent with the wording of national policy. So, in my view, that doesn't make it any more likely that a Greenbelt review will actually take place. But, you know, the outer London boroughs that contain some Greenbelt have the right to review their bit of the boundary through their local plan process. That is, if they can satisfy the exceptional circumstances test. The mayor wouldn't actually have the power to undertake a wholesale Greenbelt review himself because the vast majority of the Greenbelt lies in the wider southeast beyond his administrative boundary. So all of this means that individual authorities can continue to chip away at bits of their Greenbelt in an ad hoc fashion. But what we've long called for is a comprehensive review of the Greenbelt. In 2019, we held a citizen's jury um, that addressed this very question. And we brought together 12 randomly selected Londoners. And they had two days of evidence from various speakers speaking for and against Greenbelt review. And at the end of those two days, they voted 11 in favour and one against, if it meant that more affordable homes could be delivered. Which proves that when you do speak to Londoners and explain the trade-offs and so on, they are supportive of a review. And it needs to be looked at holistically across the South East to ensure that the Greenbelt remains fit for purpose and we're not losing out on opportunities for sustainable housing. A strategic review would be able to identify those grotty brownfield bits that are inaccessible locations that may be suitable for housing and offset these if necessary with land swaps. But until there's a direction from central government or there is a statutory framework whereby the mayor and the wider southeast authorities are forced to collaborate on regional planning I really can't see much of a review taking place to be honest.
0: Claire, the other big bone of contention between the Secretary of State and the mayor was housing delivery, wasn't it?
3: That's right. The concern was that ambitious boroughs were discouraged from delivering housing above their targets and that the draft policies undermined the national housing delivery test approach because boroughs could have avoided penalties for under-delivery if this was due to factors outside their control. However, amendments were made so boroughs are now allowed to deliver housing in excess of their targets if the evidence suggests that this is possible. The policy that offered a get-out to authorities under delivering on housing was also modified, so that boroughs must now face the pressure to deliver housing and the consequences of undelivery without any excuse. The housing policies were also modified to address the concern that they failed to provide for a wide choice of homes in the original form of the policies, particularly family homes for which there is a strong need. Also amended to support housing delivery were the policies on the release of industrial sites for housing, which the Secretary of State thought were over-restrictive as originally drafted. As originally drafted, the policies required no net loss of existing industrial land, but this requirement was removed following direction. The adopted policy now means that land designated as strategic industrial land can be released and re-provided in new locations, either within or outside London. But this must be done through a plan-led approach, and it must be evidence-based.
0: You know, this is a good juncture to get a view from Charles Pink, one of the partners in our team who does a lot of work on major housing schemes in London, on what opportunities there are in the new London plan for housing-led proposals in the capital. Here's Giles.
6: There are a couple of things I would like to mention in the context of the London plan, particularly in the context of housing. The first is in relation to the build-to-rent sector. We know that for many people, access to housing, be that sale or rent, is a challenge, an affordability challenge. Build-to-rent is a fast-growing subsector of housing supply, which is dedicated rental property under a single management regime. In London, with its young population of renters, BTR is thriving. In 2007, the Mayor issued his Affordable Housing and Viability Supplementary Planning Guidance, setting out a clear view of both the threshold approach to affordable housing, as has been discussed, but also the approach to BTR. Now fast forward to the London Plan, Policy H11, and we have a continuation of that SPG position. The Mayor has set out clear qualifying criteria for BTR schemes to fulfil at policy H11. Why? In order for a scheme to be able to access the discount market rent or DMR tenure for affordable housing, which is an intermediate form of tenure, a discount rent, but not involving a registered provider, usually not involving a registered provider, I should say. This allows for a departure from the other forms of affordable housing, such as London affordable rent and London living rent, which are Uh, policy requirements for normal non-BTR housing schemes and which would actually be inconsistent with most BTR schemes and the need for management under a a single operator. Of course, as with all things in in planning, the door is left ajar for local influence on affordable tenure mix other than discount market rent through borough level development plan policy. So there is an opportunity still for local authorities to influence that mix in BTR schemes, but practically appropriate schemes would only be really candidates for that. Giles also
0: touched on how building upwards past six storeys might not be what it used to. So citywide skyscrapers like Blade Runner might still be one for science fiction. Giles Pink again. This concession to
6: the boroughs brings me to my second point which is tall buildings policy in the London plan. Mention has been made already about constraints on land supply in the context of Greenbelt, or MOL policy, Metropolitan Open Land. Another way to alleviate those constraints, of course, is to build upwards. In his direction issued on the 10th of December, 2020, the secretary of state, Robert Jenrick, required the mayor to amend his tall buildings policy, policy D9 in the London plan, so that A, potentially any building over six storeys or 18 metres could be a tall building, as defined, and B, it would be for boroughs to identify in their development plans the location for these buildings, as well as confirming the minimum height threshold for tall buildings policy to apply. The Secretary of State has listened to the concerns of the outer London boroughs and, depending on your viewpoint, has either interfered with regional planning in London or has reasserted the importance of locally driven development plans. All I would say is six storeys is not so tall, and now that threshold is set, it is difficult to imagine many outer London boroughs voluntarily setting taller minimum thresholds. So the pressure on land supply
0: might still be outwards rather than upwards. Right. One of the key issues for any megacity in futuristic dystopian sci-fi movies is of course air quality. In Blade Runner by 2015, pollution in L.A. is so bad, everyone is encouraged to emigrate to one of nine off-world space colonies. And some of those don't even have an atmosphere. It's got that bad. So policy SI1, which deals with improving air quality, caught my eye. Laura, what are its key points?
4: Poor air quality is a major issue for London, which is failing to meet requirements under legislation. To tackle poor air quality, protect health and meet legal obligations, There are detailed policy requirements for new development proposals and they must meet the following tests they shouldn't lead to further deterioration of existing poor air quality create new areas that exceed air quality limits or delay when areas that are currently in exceedance of legal limits would otherwise achieve compliance nor create an unacceptable risk of high levels of exposure to poor air quality so as a minimum development must be at least air quality neutral and use design solutions to prevent or minimise increased exposure to existing air pollution. Major development proposals must also be submitted with a detailed air quality assessment to show how the policy requirements will be met.
0: We're fortunate to have got some insights from Chris Wall, the Managing Director at Air Quality Consultants Limited on all of this. These were the top tips Chris had on what this means for developers bringing forward major schemes in London. Here's Chris.
1: The links between exposure to air pollution and chronic health impacts are well established. Current UK policy is largely driven by exceedances of the nitrogen dioxide annual average limit value and the UK objective, although the greater health impact of fine particulate matter, also known as PM2.5, is acknowledged. There is, is, of course, pressure to move away from the limit value or compliance-based approach to air quality in favour of more general exposure reduction, as exceedances of these targets um, do not reflect evidence that there is no safe level for air pollutants such as PM2.5. And probably also nitrogen dioxide. The mayor has committed to adopting the more stringent World Health Organization guideline level as a target of PM2.5. This will bring PM2.5 more to the fore, but this is still a threshold approach to concentrations that does not fully reflect the health evidence that there is no safe level. Furthermore, by focusing purely on a limit or compliance based approach, it does not ensure that air quality benefits are targeted towards those communities who are most severely affected. This presents a continuing challenge to policymakers. We have learned from other sectors, including, for example, the net zero approach to greenhouse gas mitigation, which focuses wholly on emissions. The concept of zero pollution cities continues to be a focus for the London plan. And it is recognised that London's air quality problems are primarily a result of a very large number of emission sources, each contributing a very small amount. In light of these issues, back in 2010, the Mayor's air quality strategy made reference to new developments being air quality neutral and this requirement was introduced to the London Plan. In taking the concept of air quality neutral further and strengthening policy, the air quality positive approach proposed for larger developments in the 2021 London Plan offers a way to move forwards um, and towards air quality assessments based on health impacts rather than air quality target compliance. It therefore considers how a development can make an active contribution to improving air quality as well as minimising exposure to sources of emissions. In the London plan, the Mayor stated that he would produce guidance in order to assist developers and boroughs in identifying measures and best practice to inform the preparation of statements for developments, taking into account an air quality positive approach. So recently, the Mayor has released a pre-consultation draft of its air quality positive guidance dated 19th of March 21, which sets out the approach to comply with policy SI1 part C of the new London plan. So this guidance applies to development that is subject to an EIA, an environmental impact assessment, and is relevant to both plan making and planning applications. So when plan making, planning authorities should use this guidance when undertaking the development of master plans, development briefs, and area planning frameworks.
0: So what does all this boil down to for developers when it comes to making a planning application for their
1: scheme? Chris Wall again. When submitting a planning application, the applicants and of course their planners, designers and architects should use this guidance to ensure planning applications are delivered using an air quality positive approach. The guidance published by the Mayor sets out the requirements for these developments to submit an air quality positive statement at the planning application stage that outlines the air quality positive approach taken. Development design teams should then use this this opportunity to deliver an air quality positive development in combination with addressing other requirements of the London Plan policies at an early stage, such as those relating to transport and energy. It is expected that air quality expertise has been engaged throughout the design process in order to maximise the potential benefits. The air quality positive approach is not an assessment in its own right. It instead brings together a range of evidence in support of a planning application to show how air quality has been considered holistically. This guidance considers measures that contribute to the delivery of an air quality positive scheme under a number of themes. The first theme is better design and reducing exposure. This focuses on how the design can promote or create better air quality. This may include considering the shape, orientation, height, location of buildings, and whether these may lead to an accumulation of pollution. The second theme is reducing building emissions by utilizing low or zero carbon energy systems that ensure low or zero emissions of air pollutants. Important that there's that that overlap between carbon and air quality. Thirdly, transport emissions could be minimized as new development can positively influence travel behavior in the surrounding area. Appropriate infrastructure infrastructure can make low emission transport options more desirable, can consolidate trips and reduce individual freight movements. The output from this process is an air quality positive statement that should accompany the planning application and demonstrate how the development has responded to its environment and contributed to improving air quality. Air quality constraints and opportunities need to be considered in the design stage as well as throughout the design process through to planning. The guidance requires evidence on what air quality measures have been included in the design of the development, such as those that are positive are identified. For large-scale development, it is expected that air quality expertise has been engaged throughout the design process in order to maximise the benefits. Air quality consultants um, have been actively working with the Mayor of London for the past four years preparing technical reports to assist in the development of the air quality positive guidance. So...
0: Here's Chris on the take-home tips for developers who want to plan ahead.
1: Well, firstly, at this stage, it's important to recognise that the air quality positive guidance is only a consultation draft and that it will be formally consulted on in the summer of 21. However, regardless of the status of the guidance, the principles of it should, in my opinion, form part of the vision, design and evolution of development in London and elsewhere. We need to think beyond the limits, value or compliance-based approach to air quality and look to use development as an opportunity to improve air quality and health, whatever the limits, whilst delivering landmark sustainable development.
0: As with so much on planning, waiting till scheme design is fixed to sort out an intrinsic problem is a false economy. And air quality, along with so much else, should definitely be on a project manager's horizon scanning at the earliest stage. Here's Chris.
1: Air quality has successfully influence design considerations but only where it is considered at the start if a routine air quality assessment is only commissioned after scheme freeze there are limited options that can be implemented to improve air quality if air quality considerations are brought in at an early stage such as the, as dictated by air quality positive these constraints and opportunities can be identified at the beginning and incorporated in an easier and cheaper manner engage air quality consultants at the earliest possible stage of a project in order to maximise the potential benefits. We can work with you to design in air quality measures and work with design teams to deliver air quality positive outcomes and a planning consent. Some great practical insights there.
0: Now I'm mindful of the government's white paper on planning published last summer and how it proposes a fundamental refocusing of local plans my mind turns to the now pretty standard narrative arc of most sci-fi and indeed fantasy tales. The protagonists spend most of the story struggling with challenges and baddies in what towards the end turns out actually to be quite a narrow arena, and some bigger and badder giant tsunami is actually waiting to wash over everyone from off stage. Think the army of the undead north of the wall in, Games of Thrones, in Game of Thrones coming in silently to crush all of the squabbling families in Westeros. Or think of that streaming series Tribes of Europa, where there's been some apocalypse where everything digital just goes dark. All manner of horrid factions are squabbling over a Western Europe, where the biggest city is now Berlin, with just 80,000 people. But actually, some weird, swirling, emerging, blackish phenomenon of continental scale, a beast from the east, is gently waiting to wash over what remains. Here, it's taken at least four years for City Hall to achieve its adopted plan, uh, adopted London plan. But the government's white paper the beast from the East, last year on planning envisages all development uh, management policies potentially being stripped out of all local plans. So these are contained in the NPPF only. Local plans could basically consist of little more than a digital plan setting out allocated growth areas, renewal areas, or protected areas if a UK version of zoning is introduced. So Claire, what's this going to mean for the London plan?
3: Well, first of all, I'd recommend to anyone interested in the white paper, listening to episode four of this podcast series.
0: Yep, search iTunes or we'll link to it on this episode's webpage.
3: Second of all, that's a great question. And the answer is we don't really know. There's little mention of the London plan specifically in the white paper. There would likely still be a role for it if the white paper proposals are taken forward but as you say it would probably be limited to land allocations with annotations to identify zones for example growth areas and housing distributions but mhclg is expected to publish its response to the white paper this spring and a planning bill later in the year so we will have a better idea then of which proposals will be taken forward and how the london plan will fit within the reformed planning system and if and what modifications are required.
0: Right, okay, so everyone keeps saying how COVID will turn out to be a catalyst for some very big social and behavioral shifts that will then play out in our humble world of town and country planning. If there is a huge long-term rise in homeworking, will there still be the same pressures on housing in London? If there's less footfall and there are fewer cars in central London, what does that mean for retail or air quality policies? So I couldn't help but ask Sarah Bevan of London First, what changes, if any, the London plan will now need? Or is it too soon to tell? Here's Sarah.
5: Well, there have been some very interesting debates, it's true, about what impact the pandemic will have on our lives longer term. But it's still really difficult to predict what those future trends might be. I think when we all started working remotely and proved that business could just just still continue functioning just fine um, and without the need for commuting and so on, there was lots of talk about will this be the death of the office. But given how long this has been going on for now, businesses have started to see the negative effects of their teams not collaborating in person. And anecdotally, my conversations with different businesses suggest that business leaders and employees alike are desperate to get back to the office probably not on a five day a week basis, but I certainly don't think the office is dead. And we will need to see some changes to the way that offices are designed and laid out, um, of course, to reflect new hybrid ways of working. But also a lot's been made of a mass exodus of residents from London. But in reality, these are mostly foreign residents who have gone back home for a variety of reasons and they may or may not come back. And then a smaller percentage is Londoners moving to different parts of the country permanently. When the economy gets back, gets itself back into gear, we would expect London's population to start increasing again. Indeed, members k- keep telling us that the housing market is still performing well, and yes, it's been helped with some interventions like the stamp duty holiday and Help to Buy, but sales continue to be strong. Um, and you know. It, what we hear is that developers haven't taken their foot off the gas in terms of construction or acquiring new sites. It pretty much sounds like business as usual out there, which is really encouraging. So all of this suggests that the London plan does remain fit for purpose, in my view. Um, I think a major issue facing London is what is happening in the retail sector. But these trends are already happening before COVID, and the London plan already provides some flexibility around the cars and London's high streets and town centres. But I think the biggest challenge for the London plan is going to be housing supply. Um, you know, without a doubt, the new standard method for housing needs and the pressure on large cities to deliver a 35% uplift. You know, we've ended up with a plan that seeks to deliver 52,000 homes per annum even though it identified a need for 66,000. And the new standard method will require over 90,000. I mean, that's simply not deliverable with the current planning climate in London. And the next plan is going to need a significant step change to overcome that, quite frankly.
0: Well, there have been some great insights um, and I think we'll call it a wrap there. Hopefully our listeners have managed to avoid the fate of most citizens of mega city one, sensory deprivation, born of a world of unemployment due to robots and software doing all the work. It'll never happen or getting shot by one of the judges for some comically minor infraction of the criminal code. But maybe we'll do an episode on planning enforcement another time. Anyway, you've been listening to Giles Pink, Claire Eccles, Laura Johnson, James Murphy and me Sheridan Traeger from BCLP with insights from Sarah Bevan of London First and Chris Wall at air quality consultants limited you'll be hearing from us again in the next episode of the planning life insights of brian keep well and keep safe